Hello, everybody, and welcome to Documentation Not Included, episode 6.1, a patch episode. Oh, gasp! And this is not playing around, although who knows, maybe we will, knowing us. Well, thank we you so much. Yes, we have patch notes. Congratulations, Patrick. I am proud of you for your punning. But yes, thank you for joining us live here on Twitch. For those of you listening on our podcast on Spotify or any of the other locations where our podcast happens to be showing up, we do hope to see you live in our Twitch chat at some point so that you can debate with us, argue with us, and obviously carry on a conversation because that's what we're here for. But it's every Thursday, 7 p.m. GMT, starting next year. That's right, we're going on break until January 10th, at which time Anthony Keenan will be joining us to discuss the job interview process. But we'll get into that. Let's be clear, he's going to complain about the job interview process. He's yes, not coming to he's, discuss he's coming, he's coming to have arguments with us, absolutely. But we it's have our usual... useful for me. That's going to be like a nice, nice episode to catch on. Yes, especially when we start talking about a whole bunch of other things. Mm. Point being, going back on track. Gosh, you guys are going to keep me off track. It's our last episode of the year, so we're going to screw up a lot. Anyway, we have our usual faces. We have Chris. Hello. We have Patrick. As always. My face, Josie. And we also have our guest, who is Gareth Gazimov Harmer. Hello, hello. Extraordinary. So Yes, um, I, I, as always, we allow our guests to introduce themselves and tell uh, the audience a little bit about themselves, what they do, if they've got any products that they sell, etc. So please do, Gareth, tell us uh, tell us all about yourself. Okay, um, I don't have any products to sell, I don't think, but... Uh, yourself. <laughs> possibly myself and the obligatory Christmas cheer. Uh, so... Uh, I do two things. Uh, by day, I work as a enterprise architect, uh, working for a large multinational consultancy and specialising in telecommunications. Um, that covers a whole multitude of, of bits and pieces. And uh, by night, I work in the video games, well, criticism, journalism, commentating, that kind of thing. So specializing in massively multiplayer online uh, games, anything from your World of Warcraft through to your Warframe. But you can probably see there's a little bit of a crossover there in terms of working on systems that have millions of customers to writing about games that have millions of players. And so there's a lot in the middle there, and that's the space that I like to play in. Hmm. There's also a lot of things that both sides can learn from each other as well. Absolutely, yeah. which is our topic for, for today, I believe. But uh... Yes. But of course, I'm sliding in here with a question like I always do, because my guys here love to not do this when I'm not around. But yes, we have Whatever. our icebreaker question. We could ask you all kinds of things that are very typical, technically related, but it's not going to really mean anything or help us get to know you better. So I have an icebreaker question that has absolutely nothing to do with tech. And we'd like to hear your responses. Hit us up at hashtag DNI, or if you're here live in chat, we want to see you as well. So here's my question. Would you rather live in the ocean or on the moon? Again, easy one for me, easily on the moon. Easily. Yeah, easy. Why? The ocean scares the crap out of me. Have you seen what's in there? Have you, even what's on the beach. I mean, I live in Blackpool, um, which is the northeast, northwest of England, and uh, the beach is, is right there. But the stuff that washes up on the... I mean, there's a big whale that washed up a few years ago that sat, sat there for three, 
uh, three weeks, I think, before the council did anything about it. Was it was it that one that like exploded and covered half of a town in blood and gore? Yeah, it wasn't quite as bad as that, yeah. But yeah, I think it it was that one. Oh my gosh! Um, uh, uh. For for me, for me, it's Moon as well because um, when you're under the sea and you're in your pressurized environment, it's basically the same as living in a house. Whereas in on the moon, if you would be in your pressurized environment again, just like under the sea, at least you have like the lower weight, uh, lower weight, right? Yeah, at least I wouldn't so, have to worry about okay, putting weight maybe. on. <laughs> yeah, you you would have to worry about muscle atrophy and the fact that your bones are going to shit. But uh, you know, there are always some trade-offs. What about you, Gaz? I'm going to be the dissenting voice. I think I would go for the ocean rather than the moon, and that's for. Uh, I've got a couple of theories why that is. First of all, on the moon, you've got a finite number of resources, and a finite uh, amount of capability, and trying to do anything with that is going to be intensely difficult in terms of if you want to capitalize on any of the rock or anything like that. Whereas if you are on the ocean, you've got two options. You can either find an island and start collecting flotsam and jetsam to uh, harness and then start building some rudimentary technology and eventually adapting from it. Or if you're under the ocean, you've got all of the sea life there and all of the uh, exploration opportunities and all of the undiscovered country that you could uh, potentially document and make your fame and fortune from. So. I can understand See, I, the peace and solitude. How useful is fame and fortune, though, if you're uh, you're away from everybody else? There's not. Well, some a... people live on uh, uh, Reddit karma, so I. <laughs> oh, we've got the internet as well, See, have we? In these, uh, these I have places. to agree with Gaz here. Um, for me, I would live in the ocean. The, don't get me wrong. I love space. Space is a great place to be. And if we had ships and all that stuff, then it wouldn't be the moon. I'd actually be living in space. Space itself. However, just the whole concept of what is down there, as terrifying as it is, I mean, I'm the kind of person who went swimming in a swimming pool at like the YMCA or something like that, will actually swim really fast from the deep end because I don't want anything crawling out of those pipes trying to get me. You know, just one of those things. But there's so much craziness down there and we still haven't gone anywhere near to exploring at all. Nope. I just want to see what has been created, what nature has done. I actually want to see the giant behemoths of the waters going at it. And I want to see how long it will be before I actually see something passing by because it's so vast. There are vast quantities that have almost nothing visible to see. So how quiet and peaceful that could be. So for me, I also would take the ocean. I'm, I'm getting shivers just talking about the deep ocean. It, honestly, I'm I'm not very good with um, horror, you know, scary things in general, and not, not. I mean, knowing computer games that I've played and and things like that. Have you played Subnautica? I'm I'm, I'm, I'm Subnautica's my number one game that I've ever played. It is seriously one of the best experiences in a game I've ever had. However, the 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 sea itself just not knowing what's two foot in front of you 100 foot in front of you however whatever your visibility is that's what is scary to me that's that's why i wouldn't i do agree with everything you said about the the ocean being unexplored and being very interesting and having loads of things to look at and absolutely and the moon being boring but as a gut reaction uh, no no thanks not for the not the ocean not for me well envy our lovely envina says uh would say the ocean because it's beautiful it wasn't so polluted with so much shit like plastic 
The moon seems boring and empty as well. The sea has so many cool things like sharks and anglerfish. I love the fact that she goes for like the most terrifying fish that you can have. Well, not really the most. I mean, sharks are not that terrifying. Um, And sea snakes, but also cute things like seahorses and colorful fish. Anglerfish, what do you mean? They're so adorable. They have like those spiky teeth and they have like this little thing, which is like a tentacle, but it's not. You're getting them mixed up with seahorses. No, no, I genuinely think that anglerfish are, are adorable. Well, I, would I, I think they're <laughs> intriguing. I wouldn't necessarily say adorable. They can be outright terrifying. But yes, so there's our icebreaker question for you. A little insight into, uh, I guess, our psychology. Mm, yeah, and now onto the main dish, the, the main topic of the day, which is actually what the... <laughs> Speaking of fishes, uh, what <laughs> dish... I'm sorry, I- I'm a mess today. Um, <laughs> but what the game development could learn from enterprise dev and what enterprise dev could learn from game development, which is going probably really, really interesting because we have people who, even among us hosts, who know mostly one side of it uh, or mostly the other. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I think Chris is a bit of a hybrid here. Chris has done game dev and he's worked in the enterprise world a little bit and stuff like that. So he is going to be sort of, I think, the person that we turn to and go, what do you think, Chris? Well, I've, got, <laughs> I've definitely got opinions on this. And and to be fair, as uh, we were talking just before the show and things that Gaz has said, yes, I can totally identify with a lot of things we're going to be talking about today because there are lots of things that we can learn from each other in both industries, but they never really combine. I mean, you've got you know, you've got companies like, you know, well, you've got game development companies that have websites, but and then they have apps. And, and what else do they do that crosses over? Account management, payment processing. Mm, yeah. I suppose for the bigger companies, yes, for the Ubisofts and the EAs and that kind of thing. Yeah. But I, I always think indie studios when I think about game development, because I don't play that many AAA games these days. Saying that, that's all I've done today, so... <laughs> okay, well, let, let, let's pull this back and actually throw yeah. a question out there, okay? And this, I'm going to start right on on you, guys. Okay. If you could name one thing, one very specific thing, because I have a feeling we're going to go over quite a few, that you feel game development companies should learn from enterprise development situations, what one specific thing would you tackle? project management or producers, whichever side of the fence you you sit on. I think that having project management discipline is the biggest issue that game firms need to understand and need to get a handle around. And you see it done very, very well in some studios where they manage to uh, control the amount of crunch they're doing and say, we are going to hit this date and this is the amount of backlog that we have and we will just chunk through and get it there on time. And if we have to drop stuff out of scope or if we have to push it out post-release, then we'll do that. And then you see the game studios who say, we're going to do everything. We're going to give you the moon on a stick. And they pedal and pedal and pedal and pedal and pedal. And there's no one kind of saying, Actually, can we do all this in time? Have we got enough resource to actually deliver all the features that we're promising people? Are we trying to make too many additions to this game? Too many layers, too many features? And is it just going to drown under its own weight? And there's nobody controlling that. And 
gets utterly frustrating, partly because of the developers who want to focus on making the thing and partly on um, people not having to work over and above just to push this thing out the door. And that seems to be a common thing, though, with most of the larger studios, that, that crunch is usually 100% of the time. I mean, it, some in some some of them anyway. And we've had news stories that have come out recently that, well, we knew we already knew about, but they, you know, they've come to the public uh, forefront. And yeah, it's it's not a healthy place to be. And to be fair, there are some enterprise places that also do that. They have a hundred percent crunch, but it's not called crunch in that industry. It's called a professional working day, where mm. you've got a team of people mm -hmm. who work more than seven and a half eight hours a day, and there are six other people in your team and all and six of those are working until late at night because they think the project's important enough usually there usually isn't a push from management necessarily it's just that developers like to develop and mm. they will get taken advantage of because they don't know when to stop sometimes well see i see two things in what you're both saying first i need to address something that farida said because it relates very specifically to what you said gaz you know project management one of the well, their two biggest problems is people don't understand how to really lay out scope and they don't really understand how to budget resources. And by resources, I don't just mean the finances, I mean the people involved, which leads to what you said, Chris, this sort of crunch mentality, or even in the enterprise world, that whole professional working day is, so you've put in eight and a half hours at the job they expect you to go home and develop side projects that are part of your yearly review mm. so that they could take whatever you've created and use it to improve everybody's work ethic. It's like you're not allowed to in either situations, either the enterprise or the gaming world, to sit there and go, well, I'm going to go home now and I'm going to stop thinking about work. But yes, and when it comes to the project scope side of things, Faradal brings up Star Citizen. Hmm. And a lot of early access games, not just Star Citizen. But see, this is the thing. Star Citizen seems to be the most, uh, at least from an outsider. Because um, I think that's a good word for it. I really do. We have a situation where we were given information in a fundraising capacity to have crowdfunding instead of investors. So that makes a lot of sense. And... I, as someone, when I go looking for a game, I kind of want to see the bullet points. What are my key features? What am I going to get from this? What experience can I expect? Uh, what platforms is it going to be on? What's, you know, all of the little things that go with it? And perhaps even an idea of a release, you know, or some kind of almost um, uh, arc. The, the word where you actually map out what you're going to do, my brain has completely forgotten it. Roadmap. Well, there we go. Some kind of a roadmap or something. And yet, when I, as an outsider, look at the Star Citizen world, all I see is this massive black hole with money flying into it, left, right, and center. And I don't see so, tangibility. And I don't even... I, all I can tell you is you'll have space legs. Yeah, so I've got two opinions about Star Citizen. Uh, one, I think it suffers a lot from uh, the kind of sunk cost fallacy where people continue chucking money at a project, throwing their wallets at the screen saying, yes, I want to buy in more and more and more because they've committed and they want to keep committing in the hopes that, that someday there'll be more than a spinny ship simulator that comes out the other end of it. 
but also I think it, it's it's created this own distortion field, like when you chuck a bowling ball on a rubber sheet and it kind of distorts everything else around it. And people think that star citizen is the norm and the standard approach that you should take. No, it's a, it's very much an exception. It just has to have a very large money gravitational well surrounding it. There is also a problem from a design, especially in the star citizen's point, because I've been in a projects which were like it, uh, where you you promise something, you get enormous fan support, you get people invested, and you feel indebted to them. And then for one reason or the other, you get delayed. And then you want to make up for it. So you want to like, you have this vision, which maybe you should probably scale down by, by this point you're committed. And you're like, no, we really need to like deliver all of our promises because otherwise people gonna be disappointed that we're delayed and not so it just balloons out and then you add to that tech debt because the, there are some horror stories from the development of star citizen so we've got, we've got a common theme of scope creep here haven't we yeah and expectation management problem. and but yeah pro mostly project management is um but I also think there's another angle to this, and that's about having uh, extensible frameworks, which is something that is heavily used in the enterprise world. So if you want to have a feature set, you work out, okay, what are the key priority features that you want? Where's the, where's the fun, the core thing? And I hate to use the starving artist syndrome, but this is what happened with Digital Extremes and Warframe, where they really dialed it in and said, okay, this is what's fun about playing Warframe. Um, this is how much we can really shrink it down into focusing on the core features. But these are also the bits we need to put in place in terms of an extensible framework so that you can actually have something that you can then overlay other features on over time. They got this. Star Citizen, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to have the same approach and principle to it. I think you can apply that to <laughs> when you think about how games some games can be modded quite heavily. It's yeah. not necessarily an extensible point, but it is some developers design a game with modding in mind and mm. have mod support out of the box. Others, they are moddable because people can play around with the binaries and modify the game themselves. And others just are completely sealed and cannot be touched and changed at all. And, you know, it's a similar kind of thing, I think, in that instance. See, I also throw out there, going to what you had said, uh, Patrick, about managing expectations. Um, you have a, a case uh, where there are games where people will say, here, take my money, and they start throwing it at the screen um, because of either name, promises, or what have you. And then if you run into that situation where as a developer, whether you're building an application or whether you're building a game, so I'm sort of branching across the whole spectrum of development in general, I think there are ways of managing the expectations that are out there. Now, I've been involved in a startup that had an idea, a key core concept and built on it and is now actually pretty popular and well used, well loved as well, which is kind of nice because they hit that one thing and then built on top of it. I have witnessed games that have become the black hole sinks that they are, but I have also seen where um, game developers and software developers or SaaS developers, software as a service developers, have turned around and said to their community, look, um, we have this and it's still on the docket, it's still on our roadmap, are you okay giving us some extra time? Just that simple man, that comment, that question, that engagement helps to manage expectations and gives back incredibly valuable feedback. But I feel that a lot of game companies, 
and in some cases software development as well, it almost feels as if they're built in a vacuum and then vomited out on whatever populace is supposed to be the consumer. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. this lack of of and, engagement and that, internally as well as across the board, but yeah. And I think that docket needs to be a finite list. I mean, you don't walk into an agile project with an infinite backlog. You say, this is the backlog. If you want anything to go into it, there's a process to do that. And you might maintain and say, this is our backlog for uh, V1, this is our V2 backlog, and so on and so forth. And they each get prioritized and processed and taken all the way through. You can't have a never-ending wish list, which is exactly what's happened. I mean, where did Squadron 42 come from? Out of nowhere. And they said, yeah, let's just get a load of actors in and stand in front of microphones and read some lines. Did, um, well, you just said something that's interesting. Um, have you never worked on an enterprise project that has never ended then? I have worked on enterprise projects which have deliberately shifted from uh, a develop, 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 launch, yep. and then moved into BAU. Maintenance BAU, yeah. yeah. And, and for those of you who don't know, describe BAU acronyms for those of you who uh, are watching who don't know. This is usual. So you yeah. have a core feature set. And in fact, for the one that I'm on at the moment, we have um, four or five point releases that we're, we're looking at in terms of going all the way through. Uh, and each of those has a, a separate backlog that we maintain. We might shift things back and forth between them. But we then say, once we shift from that, you go into, in fact, as you shift from the backlog into regular, you're then moving into full CI/CD DevOps, continual backlog of everything like that. But before that, you break it up into chunks to say, this goes in here, this goes in here, this goes in here, so on. So what, I mean, there's a phrase that I've used quite a few times uh, now. It's a Leonardo da Vinci quote, and it is, uh, it's a paraphrase, Leonardo da Vinci quote, which is, software is never finished, only abandoned. Yeah. Art, basically, is never finished, only abandoned. It's the same kind of thing. I look at software in a very similar way to that. Use, software is useful, and it has a BAU process or a maintenance cycle of some description until such a point where the users no longer need to use it there are some systems, legacy systems we call them, uh, that continue to exist and continue to get maintained for a, a long period after they're useful. And that's a, a problem that a lot of enterprise software development may, um, creates for themselves. They should really be planning well before its, its legacy mm -hmm. time to actually replace it with a new version, a new framework, and whatever you want to do, you know, something that's fresh and something that actually is useful to the users. Well, see, so you, we... you bring up a very sorry, Patrick. Go ahead. I, I, no, I, I was, I was going to just make a segue. So if you have something else to say on the topic, go. Well, what I was going to say is what you've made mention there is I think one of the more over, or I should say, often overlooked parts of projects. Period, and that is the planning for the future. I mean, if we look at games, uh, games are usually developed on a game engine of a specific type with a specific set of modules, features, blah, 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 um, it, for a specific set of operating systems or whatever. They're designed to function in those things. And yet we know in the tech world, there is no such thing as stagnation. Things evolve, uh, new uh, physics things are discovered. Uh, if you've seen that NVIDIA face thing that has absolutely terrified the Jesus out of me. Um, but we have this constant evolution. So trying to plan for, oh, 
maybe we shouldn't be on this version of unity maybe we should be on the next version of unity and like you see that kind of thing going it's almost hard to plan for those things hmm. especially if you're not very experienced or you have people who are more interested in going can you stuff another feature in we don't want to put time into worrying about the future we just need to take care of right now where the money is coming in at this moment and so, you know I think, Josie, that you hit on a very important point, uh, experience. And game development is unfortunately solely lacking in experienced game, uh, developers because most of them, due to the culture of, develop of game development, they just leave to software dev or to somewhere else when they can pay they get paid twice as much and they actually more or less do their hours. Sometimes, sometimes not. But it's a general trend that Ex people get experience in game development and they just leave because mm. it's a it's a hideous industry in general they are staff is not they're not treated with any kind of respect they are a completely disposable um resource they don't yeah. they don't they don't um invest in their people generally obviously that's not the case everywhere i'm thinking about there are developers that are good at this like for example team 17 they're a wonderful developer in my eyes some other people might have different opinions, I don't know. But in general, mm. there are some people that maintain... I've been speaking to the same people in various software... Um, sorry, game development places that that have been there for decades, you know? But it doesn't happen that often, as you write. They come in, they go. I've spoken to so many people like that. Uh, it, I think one of the things that you see in a software world, more so than you see in the game world, is sunsetting which is the closing off of a project where they're no longer going to be putting time and development into bug fixes, security patches, or whatever, because they'd like you to uh, move up to the next version, iteration, or something else like that. And you see that a bit in MMOs, because they're around for a while, you well, know? But when you talk yeah, about single-player games, it's not something that you see very, very often. I mean... There are games that we all play that you can buy where the developer and company hasn't been around for over a decade. But there's two aspects of that. There's focusing on the MMO side of things. They're, they're more complex. They have more moving parts. Um, and they require more knowledge end to end about how they all work and how it all hangs together. Uh, Chris is probably going to nod furiously at this. I think one of the things that businesses tend to be better at is understanding the overall architecture and that's how the systems how the business processes and how the various teams how the technology in terms of what service what infrastructure and where it's all located is all set up and in terms of the applications that you buy in and to support everything that understanding all of that in the round is a crucial part of operating something like an mmo or any other online business you look at companies like Blizzard, like Electronic Arts and stuff like that, and they are good. They actually have teams that understand the architecture and manage sunsetting, bringing things in, uh, setting them up, getting them adopted, testing out new technologies, liaising with vendors, understanding roadmaps, all those piece, bits and pieces, and also understanding the various components of the business and various domains in which the business is broken down into. You look at some of the... Uh, some other studios, and they don't even have a concept of architecture in terms of managing what features and what capabilities should sit within each application. 
and in terms of how they organize it so that they can have a framework that is adaptable and extensible. They just, like, we have this feature, where can we crowbar it into and what kind, regardless of any kind of technical debt it will build up. Um, and Chris, I dare say you've probably got a, a similar experience from your own perspective. Yeah, I mean, when I when I started doing some game dev, bear in mind I haven't launched my own game, so I'm, I couldn't call myself an indie game developer. I, I got very far, right. but unfortunately was let down at the last hurdle by other people, people graphics things that I don't do. But anyway, um, the the thing that I found is when I was looking at game development code specifically, I was looking at essentially god methods i was looking at unmaintainable mess uh, i'm thought i'm talking about examples of how to do things online with specific engines um when i looked at other people's code as well it was written in more of a more of a hacker way or, or more of a scripting way than it was i understand that this code does this and this design pattern is better for this particular instance i um there was one instance actually that i, I have to take that back on i used a plugin uh, downloadable plugin from uh, for, from the Unity store uh, called Ultimate FPS, and that had a full uh, observable pattern uh, built into it. And I don't know, I believe the observable pattern's quite a big thing in the game industry anyway, because it allows people to do quite a lot of things. But it was one of the very few examples where I saw some structured code that I could plug into, and it was extensible, and I could actually do something that made sense. You know, the rest of it, it was just essentially right. There's a bug somewhere. We're just going to have to profile it. We're just going to have to look through line yeah. by line and debug but line by... Yeah. And it's just... I mean, I was doing that when I was 14 years old, you know? It's, it's well, atrocious, see, this is, this some is, of it. This is the thing, you know, when you start getting into enterprise kinds of situations, like when you go from small to medium business even, you know, you, all, you have to start laying in foundations. You have to have the structures and everything else like that. But... For those particular companies, it makes perfect sense. Yet the innovation, the craziness, the insanity tends to be coming from those people who sit in their mom's basement, hacking away at something to see what happens. And they don't have the formal training. They don't have the uh, quote unquote educational bearing or forbearance or anything else like that. And they do use Google Foo, like the true ninja masters that they are. There is something to be said for that though. Before before I continue bashing people who don't use design patterns well, no, 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 and, no. and structure We're all the code. Like that. We are all like that. We all will happily Google something, figure something out and try and, I mean, what is it? 99% of our job in development is, let me yes. Google that for you. But there's also, uh, what, what I'm talking about here is structuring structuring your code in a, in a way that it's mm. maintainable and extensible. So that's the important thing. When it's I Google let something. The, let the one who never used Stack Overflow cast the first stone. <laughs> so when it's I Google funny you something, say that. I, might... I was actually on Stack Overflow this morning looking something up. When I, 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 I use it all the time, yeah. but it, I, I'm always looking things up. I don't know anything. I don't know anything about my job, but I know how to structure my software. And that's the difference between being able to write a SHA-256 algorithm and put that into... I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about specific implementations. Mm. I'm talking about the architecture of your code, which is the important part here. That is what makes something maintainable going forward. Yeah. Exactly. And as soon as you try and start scaling it up to have more developers working on the same project at the same time, you need to have that, that portability in terms of someone else being able to open it up and say, ah, oh, this is how it works. And I'm really fortunate in this... In this uh, a, because I 
don't do much coding anymore, but B, because my first experience of writing software for money was in the defense industry. And if anyone's going to be a stickler for coding standards, it's those guys. I worked and, for the MOD yeah. in, the, in, the, the, in my second contract, and it was the opposite. It was entirely the opposite. It was horrific. Wow. The, the wow. It was the, and yet the knowledge and but things it, that I have. It was an asset management system. Thing. so Very it, structured. So I, I worked on software um, at the time, which it was used in various defense products, which are still floating around, I think. Um, so, yeah, you, you had to be absolutely spot on in terms of your coding standards, your structures, in terms of variable management, in terms of memory management, all that kind of stuff absolutely ott ridiculous but it paid off in terms of being a real stickler for it later on yeah i mean it is yeah. it, it's important to me these days even the dni website if you go and look at the github code for that i haven't written many tests like i normally would but it's structured it is available yeah hmm. it is available and i've i haven't written um when i when i develop normally it's test driven or you're not getting me to work on your code because it's it's yeah. it's very very important in the enterprise that everything can be tested and verified, and that when you make a, touch, a tiny little change to one line of code somewhere that might be getting used by five hundred and sixty other processes, that all five hundred and sixty of those processes still get the same results. You know, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about here. Yeah. Um, yes. So you now we, we've been shooting on game development for a while, uh, but <laughs> is there anything that actually? Uh, in 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 enterprise world can be learned from it. So is there anything positive about this? So I think yeah. that there is a couple of things. Um, I think that game dev is really hot on user experience, really hot on user experience in terms of, say, in, in terms of really optimizing the flow, in terms of really optimizing processes, in terms of really dialing down into um, that whole kind of push button, receive bacon experience. Um, and Josie knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and I think that the enterprise can learn an awful lot from that and vehemently tries to avoid learning it because they believe that their processes are the correct processes because they need all these checkpoints either because of regulatory or governmental or legal requirements. Whereas if you just make things as simple as humanly possible, kiss. it produces... Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so many people... Just, just kiss it. It's... Yeah. Exactly. For those who don't know the acronym, because I know we have some people who don't speak English as a first language as listeners, KISS stands for Keep It Simple Stupid. Um, and I think that that whole thing in terms of really dialing down into what what the user wants to do and making it simple for them is... is... The problem with enterprise user experience is generally that, that there's not much onus put on it in in general with software. We, are, again, most of the time work with 2D interfaces. That is, we... we produce data or we we store data sorry we gather data we store data we produce data and we let people modify it there's not really that much more to what we do really when you think about yeah. it there's a lot more very intricate things is, that we can do another, but, yeah there's another thing to say about it though uh, unless you're not done chris sorry. no i was, I was going to say the user experience in general we have more tools to work with or rather we have more frameworks to work with We've got more ways to validate things and how to make the user experience right for people, but we've also got opinionated developers that that don't look at what the user wants to do. Um, one of my things is I sit with users when I'm designing software. Even if I'm working in a council or somewhere that has this strict policy that is, we don't get the users involved until we've launched, you know, which happens much more than you would expect, especially in the more public sector type jobs, even the, you know, like 
private companies that do public sector infrastructure and things mm. like that. That kind in in those environments, you have people who are setting their ways, setting the processes, and they do not listen to users, even when they come back with bugs or. There isn't a bug if it's a experience problem. If they aren't getting what they need from the software, I need you know. If it's a request, I need this report. Then great, so, they'll do that. But so there is there is one thing that I would say that maybe is um, not exactly enterprise dev, but literally anything that deals with humans could really use, which is game design and uh, the approach of um, w when you like, when you're a game designer. Uh, the first question that you always ask yourself after sort of like developing the first draft of a system is like, okay, how can I break it? How can I exploit it? How can I uh, work within the confines of the rules and basically create some really anti-fun uh, patterns? There is uh, there's this entire idea of like that the primary job of game designer is to protect users from themselves, from making it unfun, not only from everyone, for everyone else, but like for themselves. Yeah. So. And, and I'd completely agree with that. I think that there's a lot to be, and this is where it comes back to, first of all, having people who really champion the experience within the dev teams, but also having really strong product managers who can act as that voice of the, of the user or voice of the customer or voice of the player and, and, and really say, this is not good enough and it needs to change and this is how we're going to do it work out how to change it and i think that that happens an awful lot in the game dev world I and mean, it's one of the co core reasons for crunch let's be honest um but i think that it doesn't happen enough in the enterprise world and i think there's a lot to learn from that i think management of user feedback as well is much better in the games industry i mean we do we have we, were t we had a support mm. guy on who was talking about itil um, screen yeah the itil Ed. process Oh, uh, yeah, I he, know. He, was, he explained, I've obviously worked in places with that in place, but I don't normally get that involved in it. But it's, it's, we have, in the enterprise, we have a structured way to handle with, handle complaints, handle, mm -hmm. um, it's sometimes it's company per company, they all have their own yeah. ways, but usually that is quite an important thing. But it's not handled quite as, it's, it's not, the yeah. users aren't as important. So, on, on that note, I've, I've, done work on ITIL. So I'm ITIL certified. Uh, ITIL, by the way, is um, Information Technology Information Library, uh, or IT Information Library. And it is a standard developed by UK government, now managed by a separate firm called Axios, I think it is. And it's all around how you maintain IT systems. That includes incident management, so when things break, uh, how do you get them fixed? It includes problem management. So if you've got things reoccurring, how do you discover them and manage it and then get them sorted? It includes change management. Uh, so if you want to make a change, how you book it in and all that kind of stuff. And also a whole bunch of other bits and pieces uh, to try and standardize the way that you handle faults with your IT infrastructure in a routine manner to both increase availability and reduce the cost of incidents occurring when they do occur. And on paper, it sounds amazing. When implemented, it can be an incredibly powerful tool. Mm. I so, mean, th there is no two ifs, ands, or buts about it. I mean, if you have like, People, that's a topic. Let's let's so, go back to this other thing that we're. So, doing. Yeah, so I've pet pet thing. I have done ITIL, or I've done, uh, yeah, I've done ITIL implementations for 
systems that support customers with or millions of customers uh, on three of our networks. Well, I'm going to jump in now because you've made a comment of something, Chris, and I really want to dig into this. Uh, people who know me know that I love people, and I, for some strange reason, I'm not the person who sits there and goes, I hate everybody, despite the fact that we all say that, right? I hate people. I no, say I it actually, all the time, but I don't. I, I people. love people. It's my thing. It's why I, I pay attention to communities. But you made mention of the fact that we don't really have a good standardized process for getting that kind of feedback or how to work with feedback. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually wondering if, because, I mean, if you boil it down, if you deal with enterprise or you deal with game, you have code, code executes, actions are performed, you know, it, it, it's, it's basically the same thing. The difference is, I think, the intent. For example, if you reached out to, I don't know, the VS Code community, and you specifically said, so I found a bug, there's a good chance someone's going to be sitting around going, huh, maybe we should look into that. Let's sort of build it. But then again, that's also sort of a community-driven thing. I have a friend who got his name up on a change log for VS Code, and he was dancing for forever. He was a very happy boy. But That's, um, that's an achievement. Congrats to him. If you were to say for your operating system, let's just go with that. Uh, if you find a bug, you're probably going to want to try to fix or search for a fix on Google or something else like that. And maybe it's something you've just installed or what have you, and you try to troubleshoot it and you fix it. But I don't think that you're going to be sitting there attacking Mac, uh, any Linux distribution um, organization that's working on things, or Windows going, I need the next feature to be in this operating system, the ability to have the calculator do this. And if you don't, I'm going to like tell all my friends and do YouTube videos about how horrible you are no like there's almost we have, this difference between what the expectations and stuff we have i mean it's getting it's changing as time goes on as more software and more operating systems are being developed but we have a limited number of what we can do i was having exactly this argument with a friend um mm. who was talking about gaming on linux the other day who's saying that gaming on linux should be the thing it should be what everybody does it's brilliant and it, and there's not enough support for it and there needs to be more and it's get and i was like well yeah it's always going to get better there's a support group out there for it you know people there's a, there's a twitter that people are always following and keeping updates and unity Why? supports linux out yeah. of the box you know obviously there's some things you have to do to get it working but it, it's there and he was adamant that it was going to be the next big thing and i'm it'll never it will never, and mark my words, be bigger than Windows um, no. gaming. Because Windows, one, is much more popular um, across the general user base of people that play games. Two, yes, fair enough, me and him, we are high-level, what's the word, um, top-level gamers. You know, we've got the great rigs. We spend thousands of pounds on our rigs, and we, we're, you know, we're, we're into games. We're really into it. But most people that will play even PC games are going to be playing the triple a games that everybody else plays football manager uh, battlefield cod you know all these kind of things and it's never going to get the same adoption forgotten what my point was but it's 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 related <laughs> well, to what we're point, just saying well, see, yeah. the point i was trying to get across is you know when we are talking about software as a service uh you know when we talk about the software that we develop in an enterprise world or even just in the business world in general which is separate from gaming there's almost this understanding uh, understandable relationship between the user and the developer that 
this is how we're producing. This is what the current feature set is. Yes, we may do a future feature set. Yes, we may accept bugs. We may follow a certain process, etc. Yet, if you go into the gaming world, um, you're dealing with the community managers. You're dealing with the developers. You're dealing with the artists. You're dealing with the PR system. You're dealing with this entire industry designed to try to sell you fun. Hmm. And it becomes very difficult i think to if done right it's beautiful which is you take the feedback in from the user and you're able to separate the bish bosh aka the the pain in the bum kind of stuff and actually filter and define the problems but not everybody has that right so i thing. i think it's a couple of things there uh first of all to go back to chris's point uh chris you might want to tell your mate that steam valve actually tested gaming on Linux, built a Linux Steam distro. Off. Yeah, exactly. Steam he, we, we were talking about that specifically yeah. as well, yes. Uh, fair enough then. Uh, so yeah, that's not exactly taken off dramatically. And so, Valve are the biggest distributor of games in the world, so... Yeah. And now they're getting sidelined by Epic, so... <laughs> well, well, they might end up Honestly. getting sidelined by Discord, who are doing a 90-10 split. So we'll see how... And they might be shot. Point is, anyway. you get a distro, you get Whoa. a distro. <laughs> Going back to your point, though, Josie, in terms of feedback, I think there's there's this whole thing around the emotional investment. It's it's That's quite it. difficult to get someone excited and worked up about the next iteration of Windows or the next version of Excel. I mean, yeah, there might be a few people who really, really care about doing pivot tables, but... Venn diagram! Exactly. It's a, it's a limited set. And it's, there never was a hype for the new version of Calculator, let's be honest. I just, exactly. I just remembered my point. So let me just very quickly. <laughs> gamers, gamers are the general public most of the time. Yeah. The enterprise develop people that you develop software for in the enterprise are mm. power users. They are people who are going to be using that software to perform mm. a very specific function, and that's I, why I, it's easier, I suppose, to manage users mm. in the enterprise. I, I think that, that that applies to an extent. I mean, I, I've. There's the flip side in terms of things like call center software and stuff like that, where you, where you, these people aren't power users per se, but they they drill into a, they really want that software to work very well. But you don't see them ranting on forums about no good grief, this version of Remedy completely sucks. But you get my point. Um, oh, Remedy! But, what it, but it does. <laughs> 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 oh, Remedy. Um, um, but um, it's, it's great. I mentioned a, a product, and everyone goes. Oh God, please don't. <laughs> service now, anyone? <laughs> no, that's not we could get into a whole but, bunch of different ones, but yeah, anyway. But, but uh, when people talk about games, um, because of the amount of marketing and the amount of hype, people get emotionally invested in what their expectation is of a of that game, which might not necessarily be coupled to reality or coupled to what the vision that the developer was working on. Uh, and the two can become quite easily divorced and decoupled. The, the problem that you have is that those gamers and their expectation isn't necessarily uh, invalid. It's quite a reasonable thing that they might have various expectations, but it's also a very difficult thing to try and control or manage. And when you do try and dampen it down, aka Blizzard, and Diablo Immortal, uh, it, it, it doesn't always work. Yeah. Um, I think that the responsibility for that lies uh, 
in so many different camps, it's difficult to say how you should manage it. But I think that in terms of expectation versus reality and, and how hype evolves, that's a whole different ball of wax. There's a lot yeah. more people, there's a lot more consumers of games than there are of soft of enterprise software, not yeah, yeah. of the... When we're talking about software as a service, again, even when we talk about... Um, things that aren't Facebook, things that aren't used by the general public, pieces mm. of software that are very specific for a specific use case, for a specific fan view. You know, I don't know if you've heard of that. It's a, it's a, a thumbnail viewing uh, product. I've used it for it's years. It's a little more than a thumbnail viewing product, but, you know what I mean? but yes. All right, right, let's not get pedantic about <laughs> it, but it, it's, it's, it's brilliant for very basic graphic editing, and I use it for... Absolutely. I use it. I've used it since I can remember, and it's a wonderful little tool, and I'll probably never change unless they bloat it, you know? But... Mm. That's a very specific use case. No, there's probably only, I suppose, developers and, and people that use PCs a lot that would know about that piece of software because it's, it's word of mouth, really. It's not advertised anywhere, really. Yeah. Same thing with, like, WinSCP. Yeah, so that's what I'm um, saying. The, the consumers of games, so there's millions, there's billions of people that buy a, a AAA computer game, yeah. even is, indie there games. There's a reason why game, like companies refer to gamers as fans. Like it's uh, if you want to compare users by type, they're way more closer to movie fans. Except mm. often they're even more fan about the thing. I mean, let's not forget that the word fan comes from the word fanatical, right? So there are people who like build their own identity around games. So they will get invested and they will get really, really. Um, I wouldn't say defensive, but um, protective. Yeah, kind I, of. I invest my time in with games. Anger. <laughs> I invest my time. I invest hundreds and hundreds of hours into computer games when I play them, when I'm consuming that product. When I, I might spend hundreds and hundreds of hours of using a piece of software. Couldn't give a crap about it, really. It's, I'm not interested in it. So, I, I, and the great thing is there's been a really classic example of, of this happening in the last couple of days, so or last week or so. So... Again, going back to Warframe, Warframe's Fortuna expansion got delayed. Uh, the, they were, have this very close relationship with uh, the community anyway. Uh, they've got some fantastic community management people. And they said, look, this is happening. This is why it's been delayed. This is how long it's going to be delayed for. And this is what we're doing about it. And the community actually said, look, guys, don't crunch. Don't kill yourselves. Um, release it when it's ready. We're already having fun, we're excited, but don't break your back over this. Contrast it with Studio Wildcard, who developed Ark Survival Evolved. They've been working on a new survival sandbox MMO called Atlas, mm -hmm. which was due to release yesterday. And they pushed out a launch trailer and didn't manage it with their community and then said, oh, we're slipping the release date till Friday. Uproar. Yeah, well, there's, there's uproar, days. There's and uproar all about wildcard the the anyway. They have a history of being pretty um, uh, unuser friendly. What's the word for it? They, they, they're not, they don't really do a fan service. You know, they were releasing user DLC hostile. before they actually had. Yeah, user hostile. They didn't mm. have. Um, they, they were releasing paid for DLC before they launched Ark for Ark. That yeah. is hideous. It's a hideous business practice. Yeah, let's not like I don't want to shit on my fellow game developers, but there are there are some devs that genuinely hate their users. Mm. 
and there are some enterprise like it, devs the same don't worry about and that. it's and it's a lot of the ways their way because um there is a it's a simple matter of like being personal and being understanding right the, i think that's why warframe devs are doing so well because people see them on the live streams they see them as human beings and uh, you know being involved in the in the product they they sort of realize that well if the dev kills themselves the game won't be made so maybe let's take it slower so you don't ruin your life and end up in a rehab or some shit basically what you're talking about is you're removing that fantastic anonymity behind i am game dev i am software dev and you are hi i'm josie i'm chris I'm Patrick. We are no longer in this Sonder relationship, going back to a discussion we've had. We love the word Sonder here. You know, being that bit part in somebody's life and realizing that their life is just as enriched, full of problems and everything that yours is. You remove the label. You give humanity to the object that you are discussing, game dev, artist, uh, software developer, and all of a sudden it changes. There is something to be said for being able to see past the labeling. Hmm. I think, however, we need to be careful. We're getting into our time crunch for our own yeah. show, which uh, means usually we have something called the RTFM part of our show, which is where we get to pick a topic or a quick thing, and and I mean quick, and we just spitball out. It is something that is bugging us, something that irritates us, something that drives you slightly bonkers and in the dev world and any kind of dev at all. Let um, me just jump in because I have. Oh. I don't think I dropped a F-bomb this uh, episode. You didn't, but you, you did haven't. say shit within five minutes. Yeah, so <laughs> RTFM stands for read the fucking documentation. Manual, not Manual. document. Ah, I, have, I have a very quick ah. RTFM that I don't really need any feedback right. from because nobody's going to change my opinion on it. Fuck Ubisoft. I'm fucking sick of them. Uh, th th that is a very blunt statement. It is, and Whoa, I'm sorry for it? using that, but I'm, I am absolutely sick to death of that developer. They have categorically ruined every single game that they've released because they do not QA things properly, and that's another thing that game the game industry can learn from the enterprise industry it's how to do quality analysis how to do testing how to make sure that your product isn't crap before you release it i haven't bought a ubisoft game since assassin's creed 3 because i was so disappointed with the game it's full of bugs as well but it was beside the point the game itself i was disappointed with i went out and bought um wildlands um, ghost recon wildlands uh, a couple of days ago it crashes on rtx 2080 cards <laughs> When yeah, you come I mean, out, when you come out of the inventory, no, no less. It's been reported. There's a thread on the Ubisoft forum, which I've now got joined in on and subscribed, so I can hopefully get updates. It's been going for about eight weeks, and there's a there's a Ubisoft representative on there saying, "Yeah, we're looking at it. We're looking at it." No, you're not. You're you're not looking at it, are you? If it's still going after eight weeks, thank you. Yeah, and I mean, like that can be fucking tied to back to the the fact that developers often in game development aren't really treated as treated like disposable resource and uh, the q a testers even worse hmm. like uh, there is like i i would just never be a q a tester for game development it's both issue of just generally the work and how you're being treated and also the money like you will literally have more money flipping burgers in mcdonald's so hmm. you will faster see me doing this than trying to play test games thank you goodbye 
And I'm going to take a completely anti-gaming route, and I'm going to go a different way. And I am going to say, if you as a developer have decided that your software should have a massive shift in what it is actually offering, and you are bringing it out, fucking security test that shit. Thank you. What happened? Hmm. Oh, okay, okay. Don't don't say, don't say. I I, I know the I, I know that I'm I sorry, have... but if if you do a massive dramatic shift in the feature set that you are offering, and you've done no security testing to the point where within five hours of your release, you have a patch coming out to fix seventy eight security oh. vulnerabilities. Wow. Sorry. Come on, name and shame. You can't. I think someone's already said it in chat anyway. Oh. Which one? We have we have Agent Nards here, by the way. Hello, Nards. Hello, um, uh, Envy. Hello, Faradel, and uh, yeah, all the people who are watching. Okay, you don't have to yeah. name and shame if you don't feel comfortable. I'll let you it's, off. It's, so, it's WordPress. I, I have one, uh, which I think um, uh, Josie's cap uh, saw me uh, getting knocked off about earlier. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, so. You'd think that, generally speaking, your, your trip to the supermarket is probably going to be the uh, least stressful experience you can you can have. You know, you, you go in, you... you Where do you shop? Where do you shop? <laughs> <laughs> so, hang on a minute. I have a point. Uh, and my point is, you know, you get self-service checkouts, and they, I know they're annoying. I know that they have a really crappy experience, and I know that the electronic voice saying, unexplained item in the bagging area is just... Rage and juice, but you expect to be able to go about your disappointment without being recorded and surveilled as you're kind of putting your things into your bag. Not these days, I don't. I expect Not to be recorded everywhere. These days, yes. Yeah, so if you go to twitter.tv, twitter, twitter.tv, if you go to twitter.com slash gazamoth, um, he has a picture up. Yeah, that's uh, uh, that's because you live in a rougher neighborhood, so, probably. I live in Basingstoke. It's about <laughs> as middle class as you can get. I, and it's like the cheaper liquor with those anti-theft dongles on them. So, so they have a camera pointing at each self-service till. So as you scan your things and put them into the bagging area, there's this thing monitoring you and taking a face snapshot. Now, you think, okay, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, they're collecting your image. As, as you're on both and a moving image in high quality, as you're paying for your things, processing what you process exactly, so they can tie your body language, your facial expression, who you are, to your payment method and what you've bought. In fact, they could even say he was smiling as he swiped this. He must be happy about his purchase. He was disappointed about having to buy. Um, <laughs> Washing tablets again. You can get the idea. <laughs> no, but it's not a hard thing to do. It's actually very trivial to do this in real time. And the amount of data that you could collect from this would be a marketeer's wet dream. I mean, for crying out loud. And they're saying, oh, but we need it for security. We'll have a guy there making sure you don't do a runner with your shopping. Instead You've of seen the people that work there, though, that watch you. They don't watch you. They just they go off and do other things while you're scanning. So, so, so here's the thing. I find it an intrusion, a massive intrusion, and I think it is absolutely obnoxious and way over the top and completely unnecessary. And I will do my shopping elsewhere without having the spy cam staring at me. This is a problem with modern society, though. In general, we are being observed everywhere all the time. 
Sorry, like, Josie, I'm going to shut up. London now. and generally UK cities the most surve- surveilled places on earth? Like, yeah. I genuinely, when I went to London, like, I, I have this thing when I just like looking around. Um, like, I, I'm pretty sure, like, every single place in like the central London, there are like at least 10 security uh, cameras uh, looking at you. So, between having a camera up here watching you uh, as you walk from A to B and having one shoved up your nostril as you're scanning your bagels. I think it's just a logical progression, to be fair. But uh, here's what you're gonna... If you haven't heard of it, that's gonna make your noodle really well. So apparently, uh, Facebook uh, gave access to the private messaging that you have on Facebook to other companies, including, uh, you know, the uh, that movie one when you watch streaming movies, Netflix. Yeah, no. so like Netflix was reading your private messages, looking for recommendations for you, and a bunch of other people. So... Yeah. Let's do an let's do an episode on privacy. If you want to do an episode on this is the thing. There's there's a when it comes to security, you have to balance privacy and security. Mm-hmm. You have and to convenience. You and convenience. Well, yes, obviously well, inconvenience. The trying to find the balance between that that protects all the right parties, protects against all the right bad actors. That is something that even the greatest minds of our time still are trying to debate out, still are trying to figure out. So I would. We'll Let's get be to clear: that. it's not the greatest minds of our time, is it? That are debating these things. It's people that are, are working in Parliament. Actually, uh, I was talking more along the lines of people like Bruce Schneier, who is, at least in the world of encryption, in the world of security, he's sort of seen as granddaddy. Not to say that he's a proper grandpa, but. He's incredibly intelligent. He watches privacy issues. He watches security issues. He knows development. He's built algorithms. Blowfish was his baby. Uh, KeePass was his baby. Or not KeePass. Um, point being... LastPass. We, la- no, LastPass was not his. Okay, so he, I don't he's know. He's done something else. I believe anyway. it was... Um, my point is, it's a. It, we have really intelligent people who are still trying to go, well, how do you balance things out and still have people feel secure, you know, dealing with security theater, etc. Yet, hmm. we are at the end of our show. It is. So, yes. Gazi, you'll come back, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I suppose. Maybe. Of course I will. Um, so, guys, yes, thank you very much for coming. Um, if you have a Twitter or a website or you do any side projects you want to pimp, this is the time to do it. So, please do. So, I have a, uh, a Twitter um, which is uh, twitter.com forward slash Gazimov. That's uh, G A Z I M for Michael O W F. Uh, you can find me in most locations just by Googling that. And um, I have a side project, which is the whole Mastodon thing. So MMORPG.social is now running a Mastodon instance. It's part of the Fediverse, it's got about 100 odd users on it so far. And it's where people are valued rather than becoming products. Aww. Yes, I actually signed up specifically with his instance. I have other Mastodon accounts, but I'm purposely here because I want to support Gazi. So I'm there. You can find me on there as well. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Thank you guys so much for watching. Please go to dnistream.live, our website, where you can find links to our Discord, our GitHub our podcast we're on spotify now if you look for us for documentation not included you can listen to us on your journey to and fro and you can also find a contact form to reach out to us to either come on as a guest suggest a topic share a story you want us to dig into 
or just generally complain about us. But you can also do that on Twitter, the premier complaining platform. So you can find us at DNI stream on Twitter, where we are, and we post stuff. <laughs> we post stuff. Yes, there's we actually a couple of really stuff. good comics up there right now, including one about tech debt, which is absolutely fantastic. But yes, we hope to see you guys next week live here on Twitch at 7pm GNT. If not, get in touch with us through our various channels. Yay. It's a big farewell from Chris. Goodbye. Patrick. Farewell. The awesome Gaz. Au revoir. And myself, Josie. Happy holidays. See you next year. We love you. See you in a few weeks. Bye. Bye.